Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. See, Christianity is not just a great idea. It's not just a tick on the census form. It is when the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit of God, who is a person, comes into you. When someone goes to trial, we expect that they've done something terribly wrong and we also expect for the truth to be made known so a just verdict might be passed. That's what a trial is for, right? In the New Testament of the Bible, when Jesus stood trial, none of those trial prerequisites were in place. In fact, there was a completely different battle in play with far greater stakes. Shall we meet the players? I invite you to stay tuned now as we take our place in the stands for the trial of the just one. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 18. I'm going to pray. What I hope to do today is exactly what happened to Julie. That I want to give people who think there is no hope, the hope that there is a way out of whatever you're facing. That there is someone who deeply cares about you. People may let you down, but as Julie discovered, even though she felt let down by her father, who by her own admission was abusive, as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. And then the disappointment of her mum dying when she was 13. and Life can throw disappointments at you, but those disappointments don't have to be the thing that define you. Dr. Phil, for whatever he's worth, said that your future is determined by your past. And can I say, rubbish? It's not. It doesn't have to be. He might be right as far as psychologists go that that would be the normal thing. But let me tell you, when you encounter Jesus Christ, your whole life can change. Your whole life can change. This morning, we've, we've heard from people whose lives have been changed. We heard... From Adam, who said he's been here since 2008. And he was a... Where are you at? Where is Adam? Over there. You were a young boy when you came here. So, and you've encountered Christ. I think this is, this is amazing. It's wonderful. We've heard from Rika. If you don't know Rika's story, Rika has had highs and lows, and probably all in the last year or two. And yet she has found Christ is her strength and Christ can be your strength he's not just about being religious he's about strength to live the life that God has called you to live let's pray father as we look at your word I pray that it will be your spirit the voice of your spirit in the inner ears of everyone gathered here that Lord what people hear with their ears on the side of their head will be one thing but what you speak to them would be what they need to hear. So Lord, now hide me and may people see Jesus. And may they hear Jesus. And may they come to know Jesus. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've been going through the Gospel of John myself for nearly the past two years. I studied with one of the world's leading scholars in John, uh, a guy, uh, the, the late uh, Merrill C. Tenney now, and encountered some of, some of the other scholars in the world who have also spent their lives studying this gospel that we're going to look at in just 
the next little while. It has dramatically impacted me to meet with Christ through looking at his word. Let me share some of the things that have really spoken to me very deeply. Christ, in John's gospel, is presented in a way that John knew him. And John is writing about intimate things with Jesus. The other disciples didn't hear all the things that John heard. We have in the gospel that there was a time when John was leaning on Christ's breast. And John would have been about 15 or 16 years of age. Do we have anyone who's 15 or 16 here now? Born on a leap year. Uh, <laughs> here's a 16-year-old we prepared earlier so you can get a visual representation. <laughs> a young man leaning on the breast of Christ at a dinner and whispers. He hears the heartbeat as his ear is on the chest of Christ. He feels the breath of Christ's nostrils coming on his face as he asks the question and Jesus answers. And so John is writing from a very, very intimate understanding of who Jesus was. In his gospel, he's called the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. It's not to say, in fact, it, it isn't to say that Jesus didn't love everyone, but he really loved John, the youngest of the 12 of his disciples. After the public ministry, Jesus takes his 12 disciples into an upper room that he borrowed. And in that upper room, they squabble about who's the greatest. While they squabble, Jesus takes his cloak off, ties it around his waist, so he's now bare-chested like a servant would have appeared, a slave. And he grabs the bowl of water and he grabs the towel and he washes their feet with his hands and then dries their feet with a towel. And only by the time he got to the 10th one did someone realise that it was Jesus washing their feet. And then we find this incredible statement. John chapter 13, verse 2. Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. So while I read this and I go, there's 12 disciples and Jesus in that room, John tells us, uh, 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 there was Jesus, there was 12 of us, and there was one other person there that Jesus could see. We go down to about verse 31 of chapter 13 and it says, because this is what happens when you entertain the temptations of the evil one. Verse 21 says, Satan completely filled Judas. At that point, Jesus looks up and says to Judas, you can leave now. And he gets up and goes and John says, they all, we all thought he was going to do something that involved Helping the poor or something. Completely oblivious to what Jesus knew. You can go now. Mostly speaking to the Satan, the evil one who had filled Judas. In a moment, Satan in the spiritual realm would muster a host of other wicked, evil, formerly heavenly spiritual beings to torment Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus knows this. 
And in John chapter 13, it says Jesus, as he spoke with the disciples, was deeply troubled. Because he was human and he knew what was about to happen. So he tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen to me. In a moment, I'll be taken away. I will be beaten, mistreated and killed on a cross. Very particular on a cross. The number of times that the Jews wanted to end his life by stoning him or throwing him off a cliff. But Jesus knew the will of the Father involved being put on a cross. And there's all sorts of reasons why that was. And Jesus tells his disciples, if this is how they treated me, they will treat you similarly. But, and each chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16 has this same pattern. This is how I'll be treated. This is how you'll be treated as a result. But I am sending the Holy Spirit. See, Christianity is not just a great idea. It's not just a tick on the census form. It is when the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit of God, who is a person, comes into you to strengthen you and guide you and give you the right thing to say at the right time, which is what Jesus told his disciples would happen. He has been with you, but he will be in you when this happens, Jesus said. And then he finishes talking to his disciples and he says, to this point, I've been talking to you in figures of speech, but now I'm going to tell you plainly, I and my Father are God. We are God. <laughs> and the disciples say, now you're being plain. Now we get it. And he says, do you? Do you really get it? Because in a moment, you will all scatter and leave me alone out of fear for your own life. Peter says, as he seem to always do not that every peter is like this but he always says something dumb at the wrong time he says i'll never leave you all may leave you but i'll never leave you and jesus says before the rooster crows three times you sorry before the rooster crows you will have denied me three times no i will give my life for you jesus looks at him like you don't i know what you're going to do and isn't it amazing? That's the one who failed Jesus, whom Jesus chose to be the leader. <laughs> I don't think you can be a leader until you've been broken, made a few mistakes. If you've made a few mistakes, is there anyone who's made a few mistakes? Your leadership quality material. Because that was Peter. After Peter said that, Jesus... This is, that was John 16. Jesus does this. Father. This is John 17. Father, I'm longing to come back to you. Give me back my glory that I had with you. Before we even created anything, give me back my glory. And Father, in these moments, and then Jesus launches into a prayer that should court you need a jaw dropping protection unit because if you read it your jaw will drop with how profound it was where he reveals he is god 
He is the eternal creator. He says, this is salvation. John 17, verse 3. Not to be religious, not to pick a religion, any religion. I don't care which religion. Far from it. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you. And that word know to a Hebrew involves intimacy. John 17 verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Don't tell me you're a Christian because you became a member of a church or you went to church or you were baptised. If you never encountered Jesus and he didn't change your soul, when you got baptised you just got wet. And now Jesus is telling his disciples... Things are going to get really tough for you guys. And Father, I'm praying, keep them. Not one of these will be lost. I will ensure of it, Father. I will ensure it. John 17, verse 21, I think it is, where Jesus says, Father, not one has been lost except the one destined to perdition. We heard Julie say that she felt God had predestined her to come to know him and perhaps your day today is the day of your predestination. You are not here by accident. If you're watching online, you're not watching by accident. God has been working in your heart and in your life. And it says, as we read in John chapter 18 and verse 1, the trial begins. The trial of Jesus begins. And this has got to be one of the most bizarre trials ever recorded in human history his farewell discourse is now finished he's moved out of that upper room it was just borrowed for a meal now he's gone out of jerusalem he's headed east across a little bridge across the kidron valley which has got a, a creek that runs through it and he goes up um, the mount of olives to gethsemane which means the press the olive press and you can go there today and you can see these gnarled olive trees that they reckon were the very trees that Jesus would have prayed among. But Jesus has told his disciples, end of John chapter 15, I think it is, let us arise and go. Let us arise and go. The enemy's coming to get me. So what was Jesus going to do? Not what I would do. My verse would have said, let us arise and flee. Jesus, let us arise and go out to meet the evil one. Who is this Jesus? I hope you're beginning to see he's no mere mortal. He's no, as some people say, a great teacher. Nothing more, you fools. Because what we're about to see could only be evidence that this is God in the flesh. When Jesus had spoken these words, John 18 verse 1, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Now that tells us that Judas probably took the Roman soldiers, the temple guards and the officers of the chief priests to the upper room thinking this will be easy, I'll get him here. 
but Jesus has already gone. And there is a great reason why Jesus has gone to a mountain and to a garden because what we have here is a reenactment of Eden. You see, the evil one came into Eden, which in Ezekiel, it says, was a mountaintop garden. Of course, you just have to read Genesis chapter 2 to realize this because it says four rivers flowed out of it. Now, my physics is not great, but I know that water flows downhill. For four rivers to flow out of a place, it means it has to be slightly above everywhere else. Am I losing anyone? This was a mountaintop garden. All through the Bible, when people wanted to meet with God, they went to a mountain. They, they went often into a garden. And if they went, kings would establish gardens on mountains. This is a royal scene. The garden top mountain. And in the original garden top mountain, the evil one came in and tempted the first man and the first woman. And now Jesus goes to a mountaintop garden and the evil one comes in. And this time the evil one loses. Different to the original scene. And so Judas would have taken them to this place where Jesus often met with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Interesting little note. The captain of the soldiers is a Greek word that means a commander of a thousand. Get this picture. There's Jesus. There's the disciples who are, we we're told in other gospels, they fell asleep. This is the late hours of the evening. Jesus is there, unarmed, unfriended, and possibly hundreds, and if that Greek word means anything, possibly a thousand soldiers come out to take this one man. You see, because there was a spiritually dark force between them, as in motivating them, because he knew you're going to need more than a thousand to take this guy. Because he's the son of God, the evil one knew. He already tried to tempt him in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. He knew who he was dealing with. And here we have Jesus. Get the scene. No weapon. No army. And just as Jesus could see Satan, we're told in the other Gospels, Matthew particularly, that watching the scene were 12 legions of the most powerful creatures in the universe. And Jesus says, you know, with a word, I could command these and you'd all be gone. That's my paraphrase of it. But to get the scene, but he doesn't. He has that at his disposal. And can I tell you, John Dixon said, the definition of humility is withholding your power for the good of another. Can there be a greater demonstration of what is beginning now, what ended up on the cross, than that definition of ultimate humility? The answer, in case you're wondering, is no. It was highly likely that Judas had these Roman soldiers from Pilate. So Pilate was probably, that is, Governor Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And they've come from the Antonia Fortress. Now, I'm going to show you that in a moment because this is, you need to realize 
The enemy is pulling all stops out to get rid of this one man, Jesus Christ. Then Jesus, knowing this, and John says this a lot, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, if this doesn't put a chill down your chillometer, your chillometer needs repairing. Get this. It was highly likely. It said, we, we just read that officers of the temple came. Your officers of the temple had already come. In John chapter 7, verse 45, the chief priest sent them into the temple. They said, Jesus is in the temple. Go and nab him now. Grab him now. Bring him back here. Let's kill him. What happened? They come back. John 7 verse 45, Then the officers came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one spoke like this guy. No one ever, ever spoke like this man. The, the Pharisees answered them, Have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him, you fools? John, this is comedy, by the way, because the chief teacher of Israel had Nicodemus and one of the, one of the Sanhedrin, these guys, Joseph of Arimathea had as well. This is John being funny because these people, no one believes in him. Well, actually, most of Jerusalem believes. Shut up! Who do you think you are? What is going on here? Get this. They come out to take Jesus. Jesus answered. They answered him. That when he said, who do you seek? They said this. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them. I'm going to say it in Greek and I'll tell you why. Jesus said to them, Ego eimi. Which means, I am. I am. Now, you're, probably your English Bible translate this as I am he. I can assure you that he is not there. Ego, I, amy, am. I am. The significance of that every Jew knew. And so did those officers who were in John 7, chapter 7, verse 45, who heard Jesus making statements that only God himself would dare make. And when he says in their presence, whom do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Ego Amy, I am. Judas, who was standing there, standing with them. When Jesus said to them, Ego Amy, I am. Note what happened? When the moment he said it, they did this. And then they did this. No kidding. They fell to the ground. Satan, who had filled Judas, fell at the feet of Jesus. Because the scripture says, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And that was a foretaste. He's not some great teacher who just lived 2,000 years ago. He's completely irrelevant. No, he is alive today. As we heard Ian share from Dr. Hugh Ross, Jesus' realm, his realm right now in eternity, is a realm that far transcends our dimension of time. We have yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus has now. 
and he has the capacity to be with you now and with the other 7 billion people on this planet individually. He's got all the time in the world because he lives in a dimension where he can do that. You are not a million miles away from God. You are just one prayer away from tapping into that dimension where Jesus is. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Notice what he's doing. When he prayed in John 17, not one of these would be taken. He's fulfilling his own word. In John 17 verse 12, this is what's going on. We already read in John 10 that Jesus is the great shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Can I tell you as a pastor, there was a time there in my young pastoring career or my service, my vocation. A vocation is what you give your life to. I was looking for models of who can I emulate? F.W. Borum's the closest I've ever found because he was a great pastor and I try to emulate him. But I really try to emulate Jesus. I try. And you all know I fail. I miserably fail. You know that. But he's my goal. Jesus said the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we might think, oh, that's Jesus on the cross. No, no, it's, it's more than that, isn't it? It's giving of your life to serve others. And Jesus said when trouble comes, when the wolf comes or whatever, the enemy comes to devour the sheep, the one who's paid to do it, and the only reason he's there is because he's paid, he's called the hireling, he will flee, but the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep to protect the sheep. And that's what I want to do for you. Give my life so that you can know the shepherd, the true shepherd. I'm not trying to sound religious right now. Please hear me. This is my heart. Jesus said, So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken earlier. Of those whom you have given me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter. Here he is again, Mr. Dingamance. Here he is again. Having a sword, which was probably a dagger, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. John does an amazing thing here. He says, the servant's name was Malchus. John tells us that. Here's the question. How did he know that? Here's what we're going to find out in a moment. John, the fisherman from Galilee, was friends with the high priest. Sorry, the former high priest. Now, how the heck did a fisherman from Galilee... A 16-year-old kid from Galilee become the friend of the high priest? The answer is, you waiting? You ready? We don't know. But if you don't ask, you don't learn. Thank you, Kim, for reminding me of that. That's often what I say to my children when they ask me a question about maths. And I don't know. I say, but if you don't ask, you don't know. You can't learn. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword, put your dagger away into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? So I want to give you a bit of a, a scene here because it's, I, I could do this by, by air painting. 
but it's better if I do it on the screen. Here we have the, the temple up here. Now, we're going south this way. We're going east this way. I said there was a little bridge that Jesus would have come across to go to Mount of Olives. That's the bridge. Um, be, behind the temple precinct over there is a Roman battalion. It was named after Mark Antony. It's called the Antonia Fortress. There was thousands of Roman soldiers there ready at an instant to come in and quell riots, as we see in the book of Acts. Remember? Paul's there and a riot breaks out and it says they come down the stairs into the temple precinct because they were right there. That's why. I just need you to know that. I now need to much to... Look, people, people um, love my air maps. They, they, they often, I think, come to church just simply to watch my air maps. But... Here's a map on the screen to explain some of the other things that we're about to see. There's the temple precinct up there. You've seen it's elevated. And that's, remember, Mount uh, where, where David bought that threshing floor. That was the highest peak in Jerusalem, the temple area there. And it goes out to the Mount of Olives. But then what we have here is Caiaphas's residence. You can see there, I, I haven't got a laser pointer, but just that, that box there. The, the reason this is significant is because he's near, not too far away, in what's called the upper city, near to the, the temple precinct, which makes sense. You'd want your high priest living somewhere near there. There's two high priests mentioned here, Caiaphas and, uh, sorry, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was deposed as high priest in AD 15, and eventually his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was made the high priest by the Roman governor. So there's a little bit of, a little bit of angst here because Annas continued to operate as the high priest and everyone respected him as the high priest, although he wasn't the high priest in the eyes of the Roman government. Now, this is a, a graphic of his house. Now, this is amazing. This is um, an archaeological discovery that they found right in that location where we said... And they said it could only be the house of the high priest. And that's because there are ceremonial baths there. There's a ceremonial bath that the high priest was required to undertake before he went into the temple. So we know it's the high priest's house. So when we talk about Peter being in the courtyard, we've got a couple of courtyards here. And when we talk about Caiaphas, sorry, Anna sending Jesus to Caiaphas, it would have been just a, a different part of the building because they probably lived in the same building. That's, so that's just for your information. There's a bit of a, a, an interpretive thing there. All right. So the band of soldiers and their captain, that's a Roman word, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for all the people. Interesting. This is called substitutionary atonement, by the way. Jesus, when he said, if you're after me, then let my disciples go, that's an echo of this thing called substitutionary atonement. In other words, one man standing in for everyone else. And that's what Caiaphas had just said as well. 
So Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple, which is almost certainly John. Since the disciple, here we go, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are one of this man's disciples, aren't you? Hmm. He said, I'm not. Now, the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, I'm going to suggest that right now the forces of darkness start to pile into this house. It gets very, very confusing. And it intensified and Jesus knew what was about to happen and he could see it, is my guess. The high priest then questioned Jesus, notice the two things he questions Jesus about, his disciples and his teaching. But what does Jesus do? Jesus answered him, I've spoke openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. No double messages here. Everything has been disclosed. Why do you ask me? Now notice this, Jesus didn't answer either question and he particularly didn't answer the question about where are your disciples? Because he's out to protect them. He's a good leader. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now that, by the way, that's Jesus saying, am I on trial? You know, Jewish law says, before you even interrogate me, you've got to bring forward the witnesses. Where are they? That's really what he's saying. What are you doing? What you're doing is illegal. Jesus simply asks this question. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by, possibly one of the officers who had already heard him preach in the temple precinct, struck Jesus with his hand. So this is really out of character, but not if he's demon-possessed right now. Saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Now what he could have said was, he's not the high priest. He could have said that. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong... Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why did you strike me? Annas, notice what information Annas has now got out of Jesus. Nothing. What charge is Jesus charged with? Nothing. So what does Annas do? Sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, the actual high priest. Now he's here, John tells us of Peter's further denials of being a disciple of Jesus. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now it gets a little bit tricky for him to deny it, because Malchus's cousin, who was there, and saw his cousin, Malchus, come in with his ear missing, well, blood, but actually Jesus healed it. So that'd be an interesting story, wouldn't it? But he was there. He saw, his ear get cut. he saw his cousin's ear get cut off. And it says this. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I actually see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed, thus fulfilling what Jesus said. Now, Jesus stands before Pilate. This is really interesting. This is the king, Jesus, before the governor. <laughs> then they led Jesus 
from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? That's a reasonable question to wake him up in the middle of the night. Reasonable question. He's probably already aware of something going on. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him now to you, which means he's guilty of what? We don't know what he's done, but he deserves to die. Why? We don't actually know. Which tells you that this nonsense is spiritually motivated because I know that because the devil is an idiot. He's nonsense. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And he said all along, When the Son of Man is lifted up, which is only something that happens by crucifixion. You don't get lifted up if you get hanged, you get dropped. You don't get lifted up by getting thrown off a cliff, you fall down, and so on. Jesus has already said he was going to be crucified. Now, notice, Pilate hasn't had an opportunity to ask Jesus anything. So he said, okay, send him in. They go into his headquarters. Notice what Pilate does. He asks him a question. Here's the question. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? What the heck? Where did that come from? Why would Pilate think that? We're already told in the other Gospels that his wife had had a very, very vivid dream about Jesus. So he's, he's going, my wife thinks you're a king. Are you a king? Jesus answered, did you say this on your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. But what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Now you've got to imagine, Pilate is a, is a Roman. I'm currently reading The City of God by Augustine. It's about, if you were to sit down and read, it's about volumes and volumes and volumes of book. If you were to sit down and read it, and not stop, not have a toilet break, not take a drink of water. It would take you 49 and a half hours non-stop reading to get through the City of God by Augustine. I'm saying that just to have a bit of pity on me because I'm reading it at the moment. Not, not right now, of course, because I would have needed a wheelbarrow to bring it in. But in there, Augustine describes all of the Roman gods and how the gods came from the God realm onto earth and took on human form. They came down, they sighed children with women they did all this and now jesus is known to have said i'm god and pilate is actually more open to that idea than we might realize he is he is really stressed right now over the fact that he might be standing in front of a god then pilate said to him so you are a king if you have a kingdom you're a king Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And that is still true today. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Hmm, interesting mark of respect. They cried out, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate said, okay, he would take Jesus and flog him. John chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. He then brings Jesus out. He's been bloodied. He's been hit in the face. Blood streaming down his face. He's had 12-inch thorns put into his thing that are shaped in the mock shape of a a crown. He's had a soldier whip him so that his back is now bleeding. He's stripped from the waist, from the top down to the waist. And and he brings out this man. And if you've seen the painting, Echo Homma, you realise... What a pathetic scene Jesus looked. And he's, I think, hoping they will go, oh, he's no threat. (laughs) Unless, of course, he was, according to the forces of darkness. And so what what does the enemy do? The chief priests cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate heard this statement, (laughs) he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? But Jesus, who's in control of the situation, by the way, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. By the way, not all sin is the same. The evil one manipulating the crowds and the mobs then changed tactic. They had nothing. They had no accusation. And then, then the, the enemy, Satan, uh, he's, he's trying to take over Rome. He's trying to take over the empire. It's treason. He claims to be a king. So suddenly what comes out of the mouths of these religious leaders is a new idea. They'd never thought it before. It popped into their head. Then from then on... Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not... Hang on, we're just getting a message. You are not Satan's friend, uh, Caesar's friend. Uh, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The Jews have now just said, our allegiance is to Caesar. Do you know what they were saying five minutes before that? Out with Rome. Now the unholy alliance between Rome and Jerusalem begins. The alliance of iron, Rome, and clay, the land, the earth. (sighs) They cried out, away with him. Away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, here it is, here's their allegiance. We have no king but Caesar. That's the allegiance of the second beast to the, thir- to the first beast in Revelation 13. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, the soldiers that is. And can I tell you that the rest of this story, the result is that for you and for me, it is what John Newton called what was about to happen. Him being our substitute, dying in our place. John Newton called that amazing grace. It was as if all those who now turn to Jesus now, today, 
have their chains of bondage broken off. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Last Gospel, Part 23, from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, evil was having a field day, manipulating the key players in Christ's trial and crucifixion. But it wasn't to last. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.